This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Emma Harcourt, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, it certainly is. We were just talking earlier. We haven't recorded a podcast before. No, we haven't. The last time I was in was 2018 and we did a live web chat. Yeah, it would have been a Facebook Live. Facebook Live, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, which was great. You need to get around that social... Um, media language, don't you? <laughs> I do. I spend a lot of time in front of a computer writing, Cheryl. Give me a break. <laughs> I know you do. Emma is an author, researcher and journalist, a lover of history and a writer of historical fiction. Her first novel was the internationally published bestseller, The Shanghai Wife, which is what we were talking about. Yeah, that's right. We yeah. were. My first yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. Her second novel, The Brightest Star, which I know this is audio, but is that the most stunning cover. I know. I'm so thrilled with it. There's a beautiful uh, image of a woman's head, Botticelli painting actually, um, from the period, which is the late 1400s Renaissance period in Italy. And uh, she has this gorgeous gold flex, gold streaks coming out from her. So it's like she's in front of the sun and the rays of the sun are spreading out around her. You know, I've got some favourite words. um, And one of them is luminous. Yes. You're and right. It suits luminous. this cover. It doesn't is it? luminous. It just shines, doesn't it? And it's got this wonderful tagline, it's a dangerous time to be a clever woman, which mm. really sits well with the story. Mm-hmm. Her second novel, The Brightest Star, is the story of a free-thinking woman with a passion for learning and astronomy set in Renaissance Florence. Okay, there's so much I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Do you know, there's a lot of, um, sometimes I hear a little bit of negativity out there, not amongst our audience, of course, because there are lovers of, readers have such empathy and they're, they're lovers of fiction. And if they don't love the fiction, they're very constructive about the way they don't like it. However, sometimes I see some very narky comments that some of the historical fiction and some of the general fiction that we talk about is sexist because we're saying things like, you know, uh, the lace maker's wife or the, you know, whatever it is we're saying. But that's not how I see it. I think there is a surgence in this country in particular of women writers and I think they're bringing us fabulous women characters. Uh, look, I completely agree with you, Cheryl. And, I mean, everyone... has their likes and dislikes amongst uh, fiction and they're, you know, welcome to their opinions. My view is that a title that includes the word wife is not sexist. Wives are fabulous people. It's an extraordinary job. It's a role that is um, fundamental to family in many respects. Um, 
I mean, there's other sorts of families you can have, but in the sense of it being a word that's derogatory, I don't think it is. Mm. And when you say sexist, it makes me think of something that's negative. Yes. So firstly, I would say that. Secondly, I would say the challenge with writing historical fiction is that you are dealing with a different era. Mm. And in 100% of the cases, women's rights and women's positions in those societies was significantly more challenging than it is today. Mm. So if you're going to write authentic historical fiction, you have to tackle those issues. Mm. And that is reflected in the writing. And you can try, you deal with it as sensitively as you can. And you can still bring forward Uh, concepts that are very contemporary and you can deal with the issues around women in those periods in a way that is still, still has agency. Mm. Uh, But you can't shy away from the fact that... Also too, I I mean, I I certainly agree with what you're saying, but I think the fiction that's coming from a lot of um, writers today is that they are talking about those women in history who weren't written about before. Um, It's interesting, a few years back, I was travelling with Tom Keneally who I adore um, and I think he's one of the greatest Australian writers Um, and certainly a national treasure. But we were talking about Aboriginal and First Nations people and he told me that for a long time, historically, they were written out of the story. They were there. They were present, Mm, but mm. they weren't written into the story. Now, I think that's happened with women as well. Mm, uh, Look, I I agree with you again. One of the things that I love to do with historical fiction is try and tell those untold women's stories, and that's That's particularly what I've done here. And uh, I think that there's a whole history that we haven't heard, and it is women's history, Typically, historians have been male as well because of all of those prejudices against women and education. So the perspective that we've seen is based on power, based on patriarchy, which brings all of the male figures of history to the fore. And one of the ideas that forms the basis of my book is that who's to say there weren't women around in Renaissance Italy who were thinkers, who were intelligent, who were trying and wanting to have a voice heard, but well, they would just never have been given a chance. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly. We're female scientists. Tell me how the idea came to you. Look, um, I really love Florence in Italy. I mean, come on, it's a gorgeous <laughs> Who place. Doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> and I love the Renaissance. I think it's a really dense, rich period in history that is undertold. And I really write stories, I guess for my kids fundamentally. Um, I have teenage daughters at the moment, an adult son, but my teenage daughters who are really in a period of their lives when they're tackling big issues, working out who they are in the world. And I remember that for myself. And so I write historical fiction. So I knew that I needed to set a story in a different era. And um, it was very easy to choose Florence in Italy. And I have a whole... um, connection and and has spent time living there. So that's kind of why I chose that part of the world. In terms of the story, Luna is completely fictional, but there's a lot of real characters in my book. And I... In, in the process of researching the Renaissance and looking for my story, I discovered uh, these extraordinary women, um, Isotta Nogarola, um, Laura Ceretta, who were uh, intellectual thinkers, but had extraordinary challenges. So Isotta Nogarola was a woman um, alive in the early 1400s, in, in, a Veronese woman, from, and she 
was educated by the humanists and uh, was an incredible debater and orator. And she was allowed to do this by her father, of course, which reflected very well on him. The challenge was that um, when she reached uh, sexual maturity and adulthood and wanted to continue corresponding with men, putting debate and dialogue out into the public arena, um, she was completely shunned, absolutely humiliated, considered to be... um, a sinner, effectively. You know, she'd gone against all the um, all the beliefs and all of the essentials of womanhood. And so she ended up becoming a nun. The only path for her, if she did not want to marry, was to, to mm. join a convent. And she spent the last 25 years of her life in utter solitude, but it was the only way that she could continue to write and communicate. So after a period of joining a nunnery, re-establishing herself in society as this pious version of a woman, which was acceptable, she could re-engage in debate with men and they and they took it on board. And so she kind of gave up a life in order to continue to have a voice heard. Mm-hmm. And that struck me. Mm. And I also thought I have, you know, I don't know anything about these women. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are better educated in Renaissance history than I. But at the time I was like, these stories are extraordinary. Uh, What can I do with them? Mm. And um, that's where the idea for my main character stemmed from. And I also felt a sort of synergy with that idea of the voiceless woman um, with very limited choices and still choosing a path that many women wouldn't have to go to a nunnery. Because it's a big it was sacrifice. A big sacrifice because her, her desire to be heard was uh, so fundamental to who she was. Mm. That's, so that's where I started. So historical fiction. Firstly, I, just, I don't want to lose the thread of Italy. So talk to me about your time there. Oh, look, I mean, I just love Florence. I went to Florence when I was 18 years old, my first year out of high school. um, I went to the university there to study the language. Um, I didn't want to backpack around Europe on my own, so I went somewhere that I could establish myself. And I was just had the most wonderful time. It was the late 1980s, quite a few years ago, um, and I turned 19 there. And it was a lot of first. It was my first big overseas trip on my own, first time living out of home, first boyfriend, you know, had my heart broken in Florence. And just had all of this awakening for myself. Yeah, um, it's a huge thing to do. To it go was and, a huge thing yeah. to do. And I met a group of people from all over the world. So I was also sort of coming from Sydney. I'm born and bred in Sydney. Pretty shy girl at high school, you know, put my head down, did my work, uh, to this extraordinary awakening of everything in one of the most creative, romantic, historical cities in the world. Mm. And um, I've just always sort of held on to that to that love for Florence. How long were you there? I was only there for about four months. Mm. I wish I'd stayed longer and I mm. often wonder what would have happened if I had. But I deferred university in Sydney and my dad was really, you know, it was very important that I come home. In fact, he sent me his father's war medals as a kind of reminder, you know, of the importance of family. And so I did what I was told to do, which is not unlike my main character. I wasn't at that point some, a 
someone who could say no to her dad. No, I mean, Australians, and I think the US is moving towards this a bit more, and I don't know what it's like in Europe. You probably know this. But, you know, Americans, I I went to uh, see Jonathan Franzen last night, and he was talking about, um, because, you know, his most recent book is about family, and he was talking about, really, after 18, you don't know your parents, you move away from them. You know, he said that's changing in the US. But in Australia, we we didn't have that culture where you turned a certain age and you, you know, moved states to go to university. And you only saw your parent at Christmas or at Easter, you know. Um, So there's a different kind of family connection. So they were really laying the guilt, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, he really did. He really did. And it worked. I mean, I come from a family as three girls girls, really close family, as you say. Mm. You know, you go to university mm. in the same town that you, you live in. You, you pretty yeah. much stay at home unless unless you can afford to move out or mm. go to college, which is incredibly expensive here. So, mm. yeah, we were a really close family. Mm. Um, but I absolutely loved Florence. And I mean, the thing was, I, I was never torn. Like there was never an option to stay there. Mm. I, I, and now I think I could have just turned around and said, no, mm. I'm not coming home. Because I basically came back, did a year at Sydney University, was deeply unhappy, had found myself overseas and just wanted to get back there. And I took off again uh, after, after, a year. after a year at uni. Um, I discovered, I read the fine print of my degree, which said I could take 10 years to complete it. So I right. was like, right, yeah. you know, I'm, I can go again. Um, and, I, and I went to England because my mum was English and I, uh, you know, I had family there um, and landed a job there and, you know, didn't come home for another 10 years. Oh, wow. Talk to me about that. Look, I... Um, Landed a job as an editorial assistant on one of the Financial Times' trade newspapers. Um, I was think I was paid £10,000 a year. Mm. Brilliant. Like, you know, so excited to be there. And um, it was on the job training as a journo, which I don't even know that places do anymore. No. Did, had you thought you wanted to be a journo? Um, I knew I loved writing. I knew I loved words. My dad was a journo. So it was, again, it was sort of following in the family tradition. Mm. And um, I... I was so happy over there. Uh, I loved London. I I loved my work. And um, I met my first husband there, was married. My son was born in England. Um, I ended up going back to university there. Needless to say, I did never get back to Sydney Uni, but I, um, I went to London University. I think I might have been the only graduating student who was... Heavily pregnant. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. I, I, I know. I remember I have this photo of myself getting on stage in this huge muumuu with this ginormous stomach accepting my degree. Um, I studied law and development studies. So it was oh, a new not degree. Journalism. Not journalism at all. No. no. Right. So I sort of, I, I worked for the Financial Times group. I did a couple of other jobs, went to uni for three years in London, um, and then went back to do some work for the FT group and... Um, Sadly, my marriage imploded and so I decided to move back to Australia with my toddler because I was really close to my family and at that point, that's yeah. what I needed around me. Oh, yeah. You would have been a single mum. Yeah, 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 yeah. Takes a village, as they say. Takes a village, absolutely. And Sydney was a village for me and yeah. was the right decision. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In all of your career trajectory, had you thought about writing fiction? Yes, constantly. When I was young, uh, I wrote short stories. I've always written creatively and I'm one of those people that, you know, every new year, it's this year I'm going to write my novel. Um, And I'd said that so many years (laughs) and it's such a cliche. Okay, see, I have never said that. So I assume that (laughs) most of us have all got a novel inside us. Um, Isn't that funny? Which is clearly just me being tough on myself. And then I, I. married again for the second time um, and had two little girls in quick succession because by that point I was much older. was really lucky that I didn't have to go back to work. And so that was my opportunity. I kind of started... Oh, that's what you thought about writing. Yeah, that's when I, that's when I thought, right, I actually am going to give this a go. Mm. And I did that course at the Faber Academy, which Alan and Unwin runs. Mm-hmm. It was the first year they did their writing a novel course. Um, and so I was doing that on Tuesday evenings. I had small toddlers and racing around and I managed to write the first draft of my first book, which was in, came out in 2018. Mm. The Shanghai Wife. The Shanghai Wife, yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you know, I also hear that a lot. So in talking to uh, female writers, I hear that a lot, that they had their children, um, they'd always thought about writing and they had their children and found the time to write. And I always find that astonishing (laughs) because I don't know how you get the headspace um, and the time. No, there was a lot of uh, very early mornings, I mean, getting up before the dawn to write. Yes. Um, I think it was more a a mindset, which is not really great because my mindset was, right, I'm not working, Mm. you know, as though writing doesn't qualify as work. Mm. Um, Well, at 12, what's the average salary of a writer? 12 or 13,000. You were getting more when you're a junior Absolutely. um, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. you're right. You're right. Um, But the sense that I had time on my hands Mm. and Mm. raising kids I didn't, you know, consider to be, not that it, I mean, I know it's work, but, you know, it was still like, well, I need something for me. Mm. Um, and I think I just made the time. Mm. But it took, you know, my first book took me seven years to write. Mm. I didn't have a, a publishing contract, so it took as long as it needed to take. And that was probably because of everything else that was going on in my world. Well, you would have time. had three children. I mean, you know, I mean, you had, I had three, three children. children. Not yeah. you would have. Toddlers yeah. and teenagers. Yes. It's a mad, mad combination. Yeah, that's not easy. Um, when you sit down to tackle a project like that, firstly, do, were you thinking historical fiction? Tell me how it is that you come up. Is it the seed of the idea? So you've got a story in your head and that just happens to be a genre or was it that you're interested in that period? Oh look for me with my first book it was the story and the idea that came first Mm -hmm. and that it was set in Shanghai in the 1920s meant 
that I'm a historical fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy with that because I absolutely adore the research part of writing these books. For me, it was the story, which was mm-hmm. a family story based on my grandmother who lived in Shanghai in the 20s. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. so the idea came first. It had to be set in that period of time and so I started to write historical fiction. Mm. And actually I really, I, I love it. Mm. I, I feel like I stumbled into it mm-hmm. by default but in actual fact there is so much to work with there mm. and I do love research and I work as a researcher on the side as well for other oh, authors. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, so tell me about the research process. I, I can't imagine it actually and I don't know if I've ever, you know, I've touched on it when speaking with authors but I've never touched on it with detail. Is it that you do all this work, write it all up and then knowing it becomes part of the story or does that work become part of the story? Mm. Very good question. Mm. It's a little bit of both for me, and I do think it's unique and specific to each author. Right. For me, I read mm-hmm. in order to come up with the ideas. As, as I've already said, the, uh, the the main character for my book came out of reading around the, the women of, of that Renaissance period. So I have a sort of a base grounding of information, but then I've, I need to get the first draft out so you can see where the gaps and holes are for your world building. But at the same time, and one of the reasons why it's been four years between my book one and book two is that uh, you go down research rabbit holes so quickly. So mm-hmm. in my first draft, I could have a base amount of, of historical information and fact that I can use. And yet I come to a sentence where my character is walking up a staircase and suddenly I'm thinking, is it a wooden staircase? Mm-hmm. Is it made of stone? Did they have handrails? And that's information that, you know, I can park and have a little comment, look this up afterwards. But then something in me goes, no, I just can't get beyond this. So I stop. And one week later, I've got this wealth of knowledge about Renaissance houses, the layout, (laughs) the architecture, the kitchen was on the top floor, you know, which is fascinating. And ultimately, a lot of it gets used in the book, but just, you know, missed out on one week of writing. And even when you're writing fiction, I mean, you know this, readers want accuracy. Yeah, absolutely. And fair enough too. You know, you don't want to read about someone who takes a lift to the top floor and, you know... And there's no top floor. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Or Or there's no lift. Or there's no lifts. I I, I think um, Geraldine Brooks made a comment recently that... Uh, you know, the colour mauve wasn't around before a period in time and yet, oh, in, in, you right? know, in a book, you, people talk about the colour mauve and if you've, you have to be have enough knowledge to know that that's in, yeah. inaccurate. But those sort of things can stick with people. So, I, yeah, absolutely, you have to be accurate. I remember, because um, I worked for Random House quite a few years ago now, and I remember receiving a letter. I was the head of marketing, and it was about a book. I can't remember who it was. It was an Australian writer, but the book was set, set in England. And it was minute detail. The character goes for a walk at night, and you know how the, some of the parks in London are gated, you know, mm-hmm. and walks into the park and sits on the park. Pinch. Well, somebody wrote to us and told us that those gates would have been closed at that time. Yeah, I'm yeah. not surprised. And that kind of makes you very nervous as a writer of historical fiction because I'm always like, there's going to be someone in this audience who knows more than I do. Or, yeah. you know, I, I Even spend... if it's not part of the story. I mean, yeah, it was exactly. just so incidental, you know. The, the, the point of that sentence was, are you going to the yeah. park? 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think maybe it's about trust, trusting the author. And you need to have that trust to be able to take a reader on the journey with you. And if you have something, I mean, come on, Gates really, I don't think is enough to break trust. But something bigger that could potentially make a reader stop and go, I know that's factually incorrect, then you've lost their trust. And so they disconnect, I think, from the story a little bit. And it's much harder to keep going. They stop believing the fiction. They stop believing the fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in a way, those bits of historical accuracy are there to enable the fiction to fly. Um, And that's, you know, for me, I tag real people. I love doing that, taking a period in history, creating a fictionalised story in that period, but having particular dates or characters, well-known figures from those historical times that enrich the story and kind of it's like a roadmap really. So for this book, the roadmap was astronomy and the politics of the day and having characters from those times, real people in my story and it's like a roadmap for where my girl Luna weaves her, her own story through that. Yeah. Do you, when you're researching a real character, you know, you know where you want to put that person in the story, do you at some point find something out about them and think, oh, I don't know if I like them so much? I don't, or... I, does, mm, that's interesting. That Look, I've never had that happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you choose, I choose the characters, the real historical people for who they are. So I knew that the time that my book is written in Florence, it was the main authority was the, this um, fundamentalist preacher, Savonarola. Mm-hmm. You know, he was very uh, strict, fundamental sin, took Renaissance Florence back to a very um, restrictive time in terms of um, enjoyment. And, mm, and you know, Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, Bonfire <laughs> of the Vanities. He was the one that did that. Exactly. I know yeah. all these things that are actually quite contemporary. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I knew he was a bit of an asshole. Excuse mm. my French, actually. Oh, that's fine. Uh, um, he was a difficult individual. He was faith-based. You know, there's a lot of things that might challenge you as a writer, but that's also rich material to work with. And yeah. I didn't like him, but he served he served the purpose and he was there. And yeah. if I didn't like him, my character doesn't like him. You know, there's this moment for me where there's suddenly the freedom and this, this sense of liberty with the fiction side of it. So, you know, you struggle. For me, I'm like, how am I going to make this work? I've got this fundamentalist preacher. Uh, I've got this girl who wants to be an astronomer, which is never going to happen in that time and place. And then there's the freedom of going, well, hold on a second, Emma. This is fiction. You can actually do what you want with it. And it's uh, something in me clicks in me, which is the same moment when I realised I could do what I wanted with my life. It's a strange... Mm correlation, it's like railroad tracks. And it, 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 it might sound a bit silly, but, you know, I still have a, a buzz that happens when I'm writing and I feel that freedom of my creativity coming, in, coming to the fore. Uh, and it's the same buzz I had when I did think, actually, hold on a second, I don't have to follow the rules that I've been taught to follow as a mm. young woman. Um, I love my family. I love my father. But I, I actually don't have to do what he tells me to do. And that might sound really simple. Mm. And perhaps it's a, a generational thing. Uh, but that was a, a huge moment for me. Mm. Um, and then the challenge is, how do you balance disobedience 
with love. Mm. How do you move forward with those two? And that and is, establish your own identity. And establish your own identity. Mm. And they are themes that really run through this book, which are universal. You know, mm. you can set it in historical fiction, but the path that Luna takes and the struggles that she faces in, in her growth are universal struggles for us mm. all. So the first book took you seven years to write and the second book took you four. Was that because you had finessed the craft a bit more or was it because you had more time? I'd like to say it's because I finessed the craft. Um, I think I understood myself a little more as a writer. I think just having one book done, I had a, a, a little more confidence, not a lot. I know that with my first book, it could take as long as I wanted it to take. I didn't have a deadline. This book, I had a contract. It was the second book of this deal. So I knew I had to get it done. And I actually realised I work well with a deadline. I like uh, having mm-hmm. um, that constraint on myself. And I followed more of a process, mm-hmm. you know. Um, what, in terms of discipline or in yeah, terms of Yeah, in terms style? of discipline, in terms of plotting out my book. Mm-hmm. So this second book, I did try and plot it. Mm-hmm. And that is something I like to have. I mean, the plot changed significantly in the process of writing it. But again, it was about giving me the confidence to sit down every day and, and start writing, knowing where my story was going. Whereas with the first book, I really was just... Mm-hmm seat of my pants, writing wherever it took me. And so then there was a lot more finessing, I Mm. think, um, and and many more drafts with that first book before it came anywhere near able to send out to um, publishers and agents and things like that. Um, With the second book, I managed to hone that part of the process a little more for myself. And in actual fact, the book probably would have come out sooner, except we had Lockdown and COVID. In terms of honing that process, was it that you learnt from your mistakes? Of course you do and we all do. But was it the editorial process that taught you a lot? What was it that... that Ah, that's an interesting question. I always think that must be a learning process. It is. I learnt a lot from my editor, actually. Mm. I did. And I've not thought about that. Um, With The Shanghai Wife... I did a structural edit uh, and the wonderful woman I worked with on that, who is actually now a publisher at um, Ultimo, um, Alex Craig. um, Wonderful publisher. Yeah, taught me a lot. Mm. I mean, we never actually met, you Mm. know. It was all on email and all done on, on documents. But it was seeing easier ways to get to a to a final, you know, character development she just helped me to see how I could be a better writer. Mm. So I did definitely learn from that. But I also think that I made a conscious decision with the second book that I was going to sit down and map out a plot initially. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to try that as a process. And do you think that process saved you time, but is it necessary? Do you know what I mean? Because Yeah, of, I, look, I don't yeah. think it is necessary and yes, I know a lot of authors right. who don't use yeah. plotting. Um, and to be honest with you, um, I mean, I'm going to see how it goes with the third book. You know, I might try something different again. I think mm-hmm. I'm still working out what works best for me. Uh, but it did save me time and that might very well be because I felt confident because I felt like I had this anchors to hang on to as I wrote. Mm -hmm. And if anything, that's probably 
what it saved me, why it saved me time was because I worked through the book faster. I worked through the first draft faster. Needless to say, there was so much mm. that needed to be done to, to, to finesse it after that first draft. But, you know, it, once you get the first draft out, you, you then can see where what you've got to work with. Mm. Really interesting. Emma, we're out of time. Emma Harcourt, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been so wonderful talking to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.